welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. Oh man. You like actually burst my eardrums. <laughs> man, I can you don't have see to kill that on the, the mic. equalizer. <laughs> We're recording in a different software today, and now I can see how loud I'm being, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna use those powers for evil, Joe. Hi. Hi. <laughs> So, folks, it turns out that quite a number of you had something to say about red, white, and royal blue. So we're going to do a slightly larger mini-sode than usual because in some ways this is like a book club sans book. Yeah, it's true. And um, Joe, mm-hmm. you know how we don't curse on the show? Sure. Okay, you're going to have to get ready to like bleep me here. Oh, no. Because <laughs> we f***ed up. <laughs> yeah, we done effed up. We really did. So thank you so much to Miriam for writing in to let us know that Casey McQuiston goes by they, them pronouns. Mm-hmm. So we really genuinely apologize for using the wrong pronouns throughout the episode. I think the cause of the error, not the excuse, just the cause, right. is that we were pulling material from when the book was first published as opposed to the press from the film. And mm-hmm. McQuiston's... Pronouns have changed in that time. We should have done more due diligence. So we apologize. And thank you, Miriam, for bringing that to our attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in addition to the gentle correction, Miriam did have a bone to pick with potentially the intended audience of the film. So Miriam agreed with us that it bothers me to no end that this movie is clearly made for straight people, whereas the book is definitely written for queer people. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the movie should have also been made for us. And yes, that was a perfect opportunity for more sex. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I actually 100% agree about the target audience for this film. I think right. the target audience for this film is nice white ladies. And yeah. uh, that means that they made some choices. It's very middle of the road. They've made some careful calculations about what was more likely to be successful in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge bummer. It's just a huge bummer. It is indeed. And I do feel like I need to issue a bit of a self-apology because I do think I commented on how the sex wasn't really very progressive. And I still kind of maintain that, but I did overlook the conversation about like bottoming and topping Mm. and the preparation and that kind of stuff. I'll confess, I think I was looking for something hot and I overlooked the fact that we were actually talking logistics, which is something we typically don't see in queer films. Yeah, it is important. I do think, though, that that also gets overshadowed in the film because it's much more explicit in the book. Yes. And so because of that, we're looking for something that just isn't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we also heard from Tea Books and Chocolate, who provided us with a litany of different issues that she feels we could also address or that she wanted to touch on, rather. So the first one I pulled out was the movie felt optimistic in a weirdly apolitical way. Mm-hmm. Like the movie felt very, we solved racism and homophobia in a very dated fashion. I described it to a friend as Obama-era optimism, and it just felt deeply out of place. Oh, I love this so much. I hard agree. And I think that comparison to it being kind of an Obama-era film in a Mm post-Trump world is exactly right. That's exactly the note it's not hitting. Right. You know, T-Books and Chocolate notes like, Does the book always understand politics? No. But does it understand the emotions connected to politics? Yes. Yes. And I 
I love that about the book and I missed it so much in the movie because you're right, Tea Books of Chocolate, like it's really hard to connect to the political vibes of this film in the moment that we're in right now. It feels like Mm -hmm. it was made in like 2008 in a lot of ways. Well, and I wonder about this because the book was doing something very similar, but I feel like it was so much easier to forgive because it specified a time period, right? So the book is an alternative history where instead of Trump winning, we've got President Uma Thurman. It's basically (laughs) Hillary Clinton with a Texas accent. (laughs) Yeah. And I can't help but wonder if the film needed to open with the 2016 election and Mm -hmm. have Uma Thurman's character win that election and then go from there. I don't even know if that would have worked though with the general vibe of the rest of the film. Like T-Books and Chocolate makes the point that they turn the Republican villain into like like a centrist Republican Mm -hmm. in the way that Hollywood does, right? Because they don't want to alienate any potential viewers who might align themselves with Republicans but see themselves as progressive. And so we get like this I don't know, 1996 Republican in place. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, in this moment when queer lives themselves are being politicized by the Republican Party in particular, to try to pretend that that's not there in a film that's ostensibly about queer romance is like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think there would have been a way to do it that was like, look at this hopeful situation. And that's really what the book does. But right. Yeah, I don't know. It almost feels like a no-win situation, right? Yes. And I just find the film so (laughs) disappointing. And every time we come back to talk about it, Joe, I'm just like, (laughs) that's They can put that on the the jacket of the DVD release if they want. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm sure they'll love that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the other areas that T-Books and Chocolate was not happy with was the actual representation of Alex as a, and I quote, dumb bisexual and uh t-books and chocolate wanted to make it very clear she sees that as something of a compliment because dumb bisexuals also need representation (laughs) in films so um she goes on to say i feel like the movie by creating the jilted lover arc with miguel really cuts down on the arc of alex realizing his own sexuality and i would hardcore agree with that i don't think the film has an arc for that storyline at all it's just oh yeah i'm now effing this prince and that's cool yeah no i do agree with that i laughed because um tea books and chocolates email here made me think of that scene from the simpsons when they're like stupid babies need the most love Um, (laughs) (laughs) but i agree i think that much like we talked about with imogen obviously that sort of clueless coming to awareness is a beautiful and underserved story. So I I agree agree with the points here. Yeah, it's a little bit interesting. And also I'm flummoxed because about a week and a half ago, I posted a link to a Slate article on our socials that suggested we are in the middle of the summer of the hot bisexual male. And they referenced Alex and they also talked about Jeremy from the summer I turned pretty and then... Mm. I had one other one and it was interesting because I don't feel like any of those characters are anything more than surface level representation. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yes, the visibility is here, but not the characterization. These are not properly fleshed out characters. So it's one thing to say, look at the hot bisexual man. Finally, we acknowledge he exists, but also 
where's the character work to go with it? Well, it's interesting. You and I haven't watched season two of Summer I've Turned Pretty yet. So right. maybe something changes there. But maybe in the first season, we see exactly one kiss that tells us Jeremy is bisexual, right? Otherwise, yeah. there's almost nothing. And there's certainly no like thinking, feeling, sharing, discussing. And I'm not saying that like every text about a queer person needs to include like a quiet mm-hmm. meditation, but <laughs> it just seemed so throwaway in that first season. So I have right. hope that it gets more deeply explored in the second season and I'll eat my words. But yeah, it's if I identified as a bisexual male, I think I would not feel like I would not feel like that this was my summer. I would feel like these are crumbs, you know? <laughs> Definitely crumbs. I mean, it's a good start, right? We have to be sure. happy when we go from Do virtually we? nothing to something. <laughs> Joe, I'm never happy. You know that. <laughs> I'm just... I'm of the mindset that we can do better. And I feel like, particularly in this area, I don't know that we need to be celebrating with entire editorials. Like maybe this is just clickbait and Slate is Mm -hmm. saying, hey, there's a trend. We can jump on this and maybe make a few dollars in advertising. But I have to think we can do better than these characters. I strongly agree with you. And I think (laughs) we should be trying to. (laughs) But yeah, here we are. So the final piece that I pulled out of Tea Books and Chocolates uh, response was in relationship to characters overall in Red, White, and Blue. So she says, in general, I feel like the movie refused to engage with any of the family dynamics, like cutting June, keeping mm-hmm. Ellen and Oscar together. We didn't mm-hmm. even talk about that. But yeah, no, that was didn't. such a bizarre choice, right? Mm-hmm. We've got making Philip a one-note a-hole. <laughs> Not having B have an addiction history, mm-hmm. making Catherine an out of the picture and not deeply depressed mother, it erases so much of who the characters are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, we have this conversation. It's very, very hard to find an adaptation that successfully captures the complexity of a text. Mm-hmm. We found lots of examples where the spirit is there, but right. the complexity of what you can do on the page is just different. So Accepting that premise, this is poor even (laughs) for that premise, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there are so many changes here that are pointless. They're arbitrary. And that if anything, if they're doing anything ideological, they're driving the text towards the middle of the road, right? And so keeping Ellen and Oscar together, not having a drug addiction storyline, like all of these things are just pushing this film further to the middle of the road. And- Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've talked about all the reasons why that's the case, but it's just so depressing to see filmmakers having to sort of cave to these expected notions of just what is. Like, right. the fact that we have a butt <laughs> and a <laughs> little tiny bit of graphic discussion pushes this film into an R rating, and I think that that sucks. Yeah. Because I've watched PG films that talk about, or PG-13 films that talk about heterosexual sexuality Mm -hmm. in just as graphic terms. So, Unless we're talking about like something like menstruation or the way that women's bodies work, in which case we're back into our territory. That's also R-rated, right? Like that's also (laughs) Um, R-rated. And yeah, I think, I don't know. You know, what I'm asking for, I guess, is an overhaul of the rating system. And like, we already sure. had that documentary 20 years ago. Sure. <laughs> but, but I do think that Red, White, and Blue, part of the reason why we keep coming back to this 
is that red, white, and royal blue gives us just this perfect object lesson in all the things that we're complaining about. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, maybe I'm too hard on this individual movie, but it just it represents so much of what the industry gets wrong about yeah. telling queer stories and just sharing the complexity of all lives, not just queer lives. Yeah. I had a very interesting experience because in some ways I was almost trepidatious to come out negatively Mm -hmm. on the film. And then, of course, when our episode went up, I just embraced it and said, oh, look at me. I'm being a hater and not liking this queer movie. And I got so many direct messages on Twitter and Instagram with people being like, oh, my gosh, thank you. I didn't feel like I could publicly disclose this because there are a bunch of people who are liking the text, they're engaging with it and finding it satisfying. I do get the impression that's a lot of people who have not read the book and they're just watching the movie and they're happy with it. And you know what? That's great. If that's you, fantastic. But I do feel like particularly those of us familiar with the book or who have seen a fair amount of queer media, you know, and I'm including you in this, Brenna, because we've watched Love, Simon, we've watched Love, Victor, Mm -hmm. we've watched, you know, any number of queer texts. And I think that this falls on the bottom end of the spectrum for me for contemporary queer movies. And it's almost one of those things where we're all afraid to say it because Mm -hmm. we so desperately want more. But again, we're almost happy to be fed crumbs because this is all that we've come to expect. I agree with you totally. Thank you for including me. I am a nice white lady, Joe, but I like to think of myself as like a self-aware one. Um, I think that, you know, we recorded our episode a little bit early. We had access to screeners. And the first day that the film was out and people were posting about it on social media, I actually texted you and I was like, oh, God, Joe. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves this movie. Everyone loves this movie. We hate it. People are going to hate us. Yeah. And... You were like, no, our concerns are valid. Like, it's Mm -hmm. okay. But I was really nervous when our episode came out and I was nervous to start sharing it because, you know, you hate to be the person who yucks the yum of folks who are feeling like they finally, you know, have a space in media. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about that before about, you know, trying really hard not to be hypercritical of representation when it's so limited. Yes. But I do think we are at the point where we have seen better and more depictions in way more places than we ever thought possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's let's stop being stoked about crumbs. Like let's celebrate yeah. this for the funny, cute boy romp that it is, sure. Mm-hmm. But let's demand more. Let's demand that the book comes to screen someday, for real. Right. Yes. <laughs> So speaking of book come to screen, we do actually have, I'm pivoting now to a different sort of topic. We ended up getting one additional response to Heartstopper and our conversation about Ben. So I wanted to thank Jeremy for writing in. And Jeremy, much like Andrew did, had a very valid counterpoint to no, we should not feel sorry for Ben. Mm -hmm. And I really like this. So I wanted to make sure that we included it. And this is the kind of arbitrary space we can cram it in. (laughs) So um, one of the things that Jeremy says is that Charlie doesn't uh, choose to reject and disengage from someone who has harmed him. So he's Mm -hmm. actually not just pulling away from Ben without giving him a reason for why he refuses to let him be a part of his life. So, you know, we've got this scene where Ben says, you'll never see me again if you don't want to see me. And Charlie says, no. And he could have just ended it there. Mm -hmm. And 
Jeremy goes on to say, his choices here give Ben one of the best opportunities to learn and grow after causing so much harm. I think Charlie's response was deeply sympathetic and caring while also honoring his own needs and boundaries. I really love this reading when I saw Mm -hmm. this email today. The fact that this reading is asking us to see this as Charlie setting boundaries, which Charlie is notoriously not great at Mm -hmm. in the context of the arc, it reframes it for me to be about Charlie's journey and not Ben's. And I really appreciated that. I was really struck by how carefully articulated this point was. So thanks, Jeremy. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Jeremy. And also thank you, Miriam, as well as Tea Books and Chocolate. As always, you folks, you're giving us gold, right? So uh, always happy to reflect back on your thoughtfully considered arguments. And I love it when you push back on us and force Mm -hmm. us to contemplate, okay, is our maybe overly critical reading justified? Or should we be considering a different point of view? Yeah, I'm really... I'm really grateful for our listeners. We always talk about our small and mighty crew, Joe, but I really do love that we are challenged. I love that Miriam felt comfortable writing in to tell us like, actually, you guys messed up and you should fix it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's invaluable to both Joe and I. So thank you so much for taking the time. If you want to get in touch, hkhspod at gmail.com is the best way to make it into the mailbag. Mm -hmm. All right. I think think we've kept these people long enough, Joe. (laughs) Yes, indeed. 